Good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian Burkhardt. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. I'm not the name in your bulletin. In your bulletin, it says that Todd is preaching, and that was the plan. But uh, he called me early yesterday morning, and I, I swear I thought it was Jared because his voice was so deep. He's, he was real sick with a cold and a fever and stuff like that. So he just asked me to pinch hit for him. And uh, to be honest, my first thought was, oh man, I had some other things I kind of wanted to do today, <laughs> you know? But uh, they tell you in seminary that you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. And so I was like, okay. And the more that I thought about it, the more I was going, okay, what would I rather do? Just kind of pitter around the house on a Saturday or get ready to share God's word with his people? I mean, this is a privilege. I'm excited to be up here this morning. I'm excited to get here to do this. It was minimal prep time, but it was cool because there's been some things that I've been thinking through and writing um, in particular, one of the things we talked about during the vision series was this Grow, Live, Display Primer, this kind of introductory curriculum for our groups that I've been putting together. And so one of the things that I've been writing this week for that primer is what I, what I just basically said, okay, this is what I'm going to preach on. And I'm excited to share it with you guys because it's been something that's been transformational for me in my own life. Let me ask you this question. We sing, each one of the songs we sang this morning used this word holy or holiness. What comes to your mind when you hear the word holy? Set apart. What else? Purity. What else? Sacred. Okay. What else? Consecration. Yes. What was I heard another one over here? Without sin. Absolutely. I think if you, all those things, those are our, our, our concept of holiness. Absolutely. Purity, righteous, consecrated, sacred, set apart from normal things. I think if you talked with people who aren't Christians, who aren't, don't normally come to church, some of our, our, our typical conception in our culture of holiness is, is, uh, is referring to these people who have somehow attained some level of spiritual enlightenment, these holy ones, right? They've, they've achieved some sort of mystical connection with some divine something, right? We would say that there is just something different when it comes to holiness. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, God calls the people of Israel, he says, be holy even as I am holy. When you hear that verse, does it sound easy? Does it sound heavy? Does it sound like, how can you expect us to do that? How could we possibly be holy like you're holy. I mean, that's the way that I would always look at that verse. I would look at it and go, okay, I understand, Lord, that's what you say, but I can never measure up to that. And I mean, I know God loves me. I know that God forgives my sin, but I still struggle with sin, right? And so there's always, I think a lot of us, if you're anything like me, we wrestle with this sort of guilt, this disappointment that somehow, even though God loves us and has forgiven us and we know that we have eternal life and that security because of Jesus, there's still that sort of disappointment of going, somehow I'm not living up to what God expects of me. You ever felt that way? Thank you. I saw that. <laughs> as I've grown in my faith, as I've grown in my walk with the Lord, in my understanding of Scripture, I think my understanding of holiness has grown as well. What I'm learning is that holiness has more to do with who I am than who I want to be. It has more to do with who we are than who we want to be. It has less to do with our ability to stay close to Jesus, to stay in a close relationship with Jesus, than it does have to do with the reason why Jesus brought us into this relationship in the first place. 
Let me say that one more time. How, holiness has more to do with who I am than who I want to be. It's less about my ability to maintain a close relationship with Jesus than it is about Jesus' purpose in bringing me into that relationship in the first place. You see, I think a lot of times our confusion about holiness or our rustling, our disappointment when it comes to this concept of holiness comes because we typically see it as a synonym of righteousness or purity, right? We see them as kind of illustrating the same thing. The terms are similar, but there are some important differences between, the, between them. On the one hand, this. Righteousness and purity always convey a sense of moral perfection, a sense of being filled with all that is good and nothing that's evil. Those are always moral terms. But holiness at its most basic definition is a non-moral term. It's not talking about rightness or wrongness. It's talking about otherness. Holiness is a term of distinction. At its most basic definition, it's a way to distinguish or set things apart as being different from other things. For instance, uh, my wife and I, we have four young kids. Our two-year-old daughter, Josie, we're currently potty training her. I guess you could say we are teaching her about the holiness of our toilet. It is set apart. It is distinct. It is different because we use it for a different purpose than anything else in our house, right? We use it differently than we use the kitchen table or the bed or the refrigerator, right? Hopefully. That's why it's called potty training, teaching her what it means to use this set-apart thing for its specific purpose. I know that's a crude illustration, and I know some of you guys might go, how could he equate holiness with a toilet? I think I, I did it on purpose because I feel like it, it comes from such a different angle than how we typically think about holiness that it makes us step back and go, hold on, maybe this is different from the way I've typically understood it. You see, if we take that basic definition of holiness as a term of distinction, then that should be our starting point in understanding what it means that God is holy. That song we just sang, that God is holy, holy, holy. We're not just talking about the fact that he is righteous and pure. He is, absolutely. But those are just a couple of the ways in which he is holy or distinct or different from us. When we talk about the holiness of God, we are talking about every way in which he is different from or greater than the rest of his creation. That's what it means that God is holy. He is other. He is greater. He is different from us. God says it of himself in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Here's what he says. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm like the difference between the stars and the earth. I am that far above you. The people of Israel, after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, after 400 years of slavery, after God rescued them from Egypt through the ten plagues, just showing time and time again, I'm better than this Egyptian God, I'm better than that Egyptian God, I'm greater than that Egyptian God, I'm greater than everything. He brings them to the shore of the Dead Sea. He parts the Dead Sea so they walk through on dry land. Then as Pharaoh's armies come charging after them into the sea, God brings it back down and drowns the entire army right in front of them. And in Exodus chapter 15, as the people of Israel standing on the far shore of the, sea of, uh, of the Red Sea, watching the dead Israelite soldiers bobbing up and down in the waves, they gained a first-hand understanding what it means that God is holy, that he is different. And so they exclaimed in Exodus 15, they said, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who's like you at all? You're majestic 
in holiness. You're awesome in power. You work wonders. When we talk about God's holiness, we are talking about every way in which he is greater than and different from us. That's why the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4 are constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. It's the best term they can find to describe his infinite otherness, and they never get tired of saying it. But we learn in Scripture that not only is God holy, set apart, different, greater than us, but out of that infinite holiness, God takes things within his creation, both people and things, and makes them holy. But remember the basic definition. We're not primarily talking about how he makes things righteous and pure, though he does that too. When we talk about him making things and people holy, he sets them apart differently for a purpose. Always connected to a purpose. Let's see the first place that the word holy comes up in Scripture. It's in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus says the heavens and the earth, or thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. When God made the Sabbath day holy, did he remove some sort of impurity, immorality from it? Was it impure, unrighteous, and he made it righteous? No, he made it different, right? He had worked those first six days speaking the entire universe into existence. But he took the seventh day and set it apart, made it different for a purpose. The first six days, the purpose was work. The seventh day, the purpose was rest. That's why in Exodus chapter 20, in the, in the Ten Commandments, God commands the people to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not make it holy. God already made it holy. But keep it holy. Use it for the holy purpose that God had made it for. Six days you shall labor and work and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. Why? Look down at verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God made it holy. They were to keep it holy, to use it for its holy purpose. Does that make sense? Think about the tabernacle, another example from the Old Testament. That tent where God dwelt within his people. When the tabernacle was being built, was there something holy, or there, was there something righteous and pure about the gold and silver and bronze, the purple and red and scarlet and purple yarns, the finely twisted linens, the goat hairs? Were they moral goat hairs? No, they were just household materials that everyone used to make all of their houses. But when those materials were contributed to the work of the tabernacle, they became holy. They took on a holy purpose. That tent was the place, Exodus 24 tells us, where God would dwell in the midst of his people. Not anyone could just walk up into the tabernacle. It was different. It was other. It had a holy purpose as the dwelling place of the holy God. But it wasn't just to be the place where God dwelt. It was also the place where the people came to deal with their sin. It was the only place where their sins could be dealt with. So as people came and they brought bulls and goats and lambs and sacrificed them as burnt offerings, it provided a covering for their sins so that they could still be in God's presence and still accomplish their holy purpose, though their lives were often filled with unrighteousness. 
The tabernacle provided the way that an unrighteous people could still be holy. See, as we look not only at the way God makes things holy, but as he makes people holy, he always does it for the same two reasons throughout the entire Bible. When he sets people apart, makes them different, we're not talking about righteous or pure necessarily here. We're talking about when he sets them apart and makes them different. He does it for the same two purposes. Number one is to live with them, to call them into this special intimate relationship with him. And number two, to display himself through them. You can look through the entire Bible and see this. In the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve, they were set apart, distinct, holy, different than the rest of creation because they alone had been made in the image of God. We read in Genesis 3 how God would walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. They lived in God's presence in this unique relationship with God. And he had given them the mission to rule over his creation as his representatives, as his image bearers, that they were to display God in the way that they cared for his creation. That's what made their decision to eat the fruit of the tree so bad. It wasn't just disobedience in a single act. It was the wholesale rejection of God's holy purpose for them. That's why it brought death and disease and sin and strife and to the point where then you get to Genesis 6 and you see that Adam and Eve had a whole bunch of children and the earth is filled with them. And God looks down in Genesis 6 and he sees that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts is only evil all the time. So what does he do? He calls one man, Noah, sets him apart, makes him distinct, different, holy. Why? To build the ark. To be the one that God would continue the human race through. He called him into this particular relationship with him. And then he was going to use him to continue the work of displaying God throughout humanity. But we know that Noah's descendants, as they grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger, together on the plains of Shinar, they said, we don't want to live for God's purpose. We want to make a name for ourselves. Let's gather together. Let's build a city with a tower reaching up to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. So God comes, scatters them across the earth, confuses their languages. And then what does he do? He grabs one man, sets him apart from the rest, makes him distinct different, holy, Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, he says to Abraham, leave your father's land. Go to the land I will show you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless whoever blesses you. I will curse whoever curses you. But the whole purpose was that through Abraham, all peoples on earth would be blessed. He called Abraham into a special relationship to live with God so that he might bring blessing to all people through Abraham to put him on display. It's always been those same two purposes. Holiness has never just been my, about my moral standing with God, but the purpose for which God sets me apart. Does that make sense? He made it so clear to the people of Israel after they'd come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai and in Exodus chapter 19, 19 here's what it says. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be special, treasured by me, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Look at those two phrases there. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were holy. The entire nation 
set apart, distinct, different from the world around them for God's purpose. And what was God's purpose for them? To be a kingdom of priests. The role of the priest was kind of to be that intermediary, that interface between God and the people. The priests represented God to the people and the people to God. They ministered in the tabernacle, taking the sacrifices on behalf of the people, leading the people in worship to God. And what God is saying is that the entire, just as the priests function as that interface between God and the people, the nation as a whole was to do the same thing with the nations around them. They were to live in this special relationship with God in order to display God to the world around them. That's what they were there to do. That's why he commanded them to obey the law. Their obedience to the law wasn't just so that they could feel good when they did good and feel bad when they did bad. He had a much bigger purpose than that. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, here's what he says. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking to the people. He commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Why? Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? The purpose of their obedience was that it would display to the nations who God was. They would see the wisdom and the understanding, and they would know that God was with his people. Remember the Sabbath we just looked at? God made the Sabbath holy and then commanded the Israelites to keep it holy, to use it for that purpose. Now think about the verse that I mentioned at the very beginning, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. When God called his people to be holy as I am holy, is he commanding them to try and strive to become holy or to be holy? Be holy, right? Do you see how that changes things? He wasn't calling them to achieve some level, but to live as the people that he had made them to be. Because as they did that, they would show that they were his holy people, set apart to live with him and put him on display. But we know throughout Israel's history that they struggled with this, right? They failed over and over again. But their struggle, their failure, wasn't a failure of not being able to obey. It was much deeper than that. It was a heart struggle of, do we actually want to be the people that God says we are? Do we want to people who be a people who dwell with God? Because we sure like all these other gods that the nations around us worship. Do we want to be a people that exist to put God on display? Because we really want to be just like the people around us. It got to the point where the people had so wholesale rejected God's holy purpose for them. He says, okay, if you are unwilling to display me to the nations, then you will not be a people that I live with. And he sent them out of his presence, and he scattered them amongst the nations. But even as he did this, in Ezekiel 36, he makes the most glorious promise to them. Go there real quick. If you have your Bibles, open up to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel was a prophet who lived in the land of Babylon. 
together with the Israelite people, exiled from their homeland, scattered amongst the nations. But God continues to speak to them through one of their own prophets who's there in Babylon with them. And so he communicates this to his people living in bondage in a foreign land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And look at verse 27. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. Is that amazing? Though they had rejected his holy purpose, he's like, I'm not done with you. I'm going to win you back. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to cleanse you of all your impurity. I will make you new. I will give you a new spirit. More than that, I will give you my spirit. Then I will cause you to walk in obedience. You will display me to the nations. But look at what he says just before that. Look at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. God would bring them back into this completely awesome, intimate relationship with him. But it wasn't just about that. It wasn't just about their relationship. It was because his purpose all along was that through that relationship, the nations would know that he is Yahweh. It's always been about both of those things, to live with God and to put him on display. It's always been about both of those things. We see these promises, God's promise to make his people holy and display himself through them. We see those promises perfectly fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who came to be God with us. That's what we sang, right? Emmanuel, God becoming flesh. You see, in the Old Testament, God dwelt in the tabernacle in this tent. But in the person of Jesus, John 1.14 tells us that the word, God himself, became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled amongst us. He was a better dwelling place for God than the temple. And just as the tabernacle was the only place where the people of Israel's sins could be dealt with, where they could offer sacrifices to provide a covering over their sins, Hebrews 9 says it like this, that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, not just to cover sin, but it says to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He is a better dwelling place for God because not only is it closer and more intimate, because there's no more need for these temporary animal sacrifices. The one perfect sacrifice has been offered. And just as God's holy purpose for Israel was to live with them and to display him to the nations, so John 1.18 tells us that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus came to put God on display. In John 12.32, talking about his crucifixion, Jesus said that when I am crucified, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
that he in himself would display God to the nations so clearly. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He so perfectly displayed God that he could tell his disciples in John 14, 9, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled God's holy purpose for his people. He is God with us, and he is God perfectly displayed to the nations. That's why we worship Jesus. That's why it's all about Jesus. But it doesn't stop there, because Jesus' purpose wasn't just to fulfill God's holy purpose for his people, but then to do it through his people. That was the problem of Ezekiel 36, right? New hearts, new spirits, and a new ability to obey to display God through our words and our actions. That's what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 9, actually. Oh, it is 8. There we go. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see God's holy purpose reflected in this? To live with his people and display himself through his people? Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. God is going to take up residence with you in a closer way than ever before, even closer than Jesus being on earth. And through that, through the Holy Spirit living within them, he would propel them forward to witness, that he would give them power to witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. They would live with God and they would display God. And so for... for, 50 or so days later, the Holy Spirit comes, descends upon the apostles, and they are empowered to witness to Jesus. And even when persecution breaks out and they scatter around the place, everywhere they go, they are carrying this message of Jesus. And the amazing thing is, as they witness through the power of the Holy Spirit about Jesus, the Spirit was at work also in the people who were hearing them. Those who heard and repented and believed the Holy Spirit came upon them in the same way, setting them apart, making them distinct and different and holy for God's purpose. The amazing thing about it is that that is us today. Generation after generation, God's people have carried forth this message in the power of Jesus. They have lived with God and put God on display, and that's why we're here, because we have been called into the same mission Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, But you, speaking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may declare the ex- or proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that verse sound familiar? It's the same thing we read in Exodus 19, what God told the people of Israel their purpose was a royal priesthood or a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Apostle Peter uses the exact same phrases that defined Israel's purpose to define our purpose as the church, to show us that though much has changed between before Jesus came and after Jesus came, God's purpose for his people remains the same. Much has changed. God no longer dwells in a physical temple, a tabernacle, a building. He dwells within his people. And that people is no longer defined as a single ethnic group on a particular geographical location, but of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and every place who gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. There's no longer sacrifices that need to be made because Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, has been made. 
Though much has changed, God's purpose is the same. We still exist to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The way that Ephesians 2 says it, that we, the church, are being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that, as we looked in 1 Peter, we can declare his excellencies, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I started out by saying that holiness is more about who we are than who we want to be. It's less about our ability to maintain a close relationship with Jesus as it is about Jesus' purpose in bringing us into this relationship in the first place. Do you see what I mean? We are holy. Not because we have reached some level of righteousness on our own, but because God has made us holy for his purpose. When God sets us apart, makes us distinct, different, I had, a, I had a Bible teacher who used to do this exact same hand motion when he talked about holiness. You're set apart. And for some reason, it always conjured up in my mind being put up on a shelf out of the way on display. Kind of. It made me think of my mom's china cabinet, you know, where the nice crystal and nice dishes were that were kind of out of the way, but you didn't really use them, right? <laughs> Maybe once or twice a year. Like a trophy case. When God makes us holy, he doesn't put us in a trophy case. He puts us in his tool belt. We are to be useful to him. That's what holiness is. We now exist to dwell with God and to put him on his way. That's what we're here for. So here's the deal. There is a unique relationship between righteousness and holiness. But it's not the one that we typically think of. If God has made us holy... We're not seeking to live righteously in order to become holy, but because we are holy, right? I have an illustration for you on this. That it works great with kids, and so I'm hoping it'll work well with you guys as well. All right. Here we go. Yes. All right. You guys know who these guys are? I got the biggest ones I could find, so hopefully you people in the back can see. Who's this? Iron Man. Who's this? Spider-Man, superheroes. My boys are so into this. I could barely pry these out of their hands to bring in this morning. They're both superheroes. They're both Marvel superheroes. They're actually part of the Avengers together and all that kind of stuff. But they are distinctly different in how they became superheroes, right? On the one hand, you have Tony Stark, billionaire, philanthropist, genius guy who just, because of his own genius and all the money that he inherited from his dad, is able to develop this amazing iron suit with blasters and all kinds of stuff like that. He is the self-made superhero by his own power, by his own smarts. He has done everything. On the other hand, you have Spider-Man, nerdy Peter Parker that no one likes, who, because he's a science geek... Gets caught in two ways. You could either say that he was bit by a radioactive spider or he get caught, got caught in gamma radiation with a spider and all of a sudden woke up the next day with superpowers. He could shoot web, he could climb things, he could do all that kind of stuff. He is not the self-made superhero. He became something. A transformation happened. I think more often than not, when we talk about holiness, we're trying to be more like Iron Man than Spider-Man. By our own power, by our own abilities, by our own ability to just get it done, reach some level where then we can be holy and we can feel okay and secure. When instead going, no, there is a fundamental change. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you did not stumble upon this yourself. This was God changing you from within. We're not trying to become holy. We are. Which means now we go, okay, what's the purpose of our holiness? What's it for? 
That's what we need to do. If we are commanded to be holy as God is holy, then we must be busy about the purpose for why he set us apart. We exist to be a people who God dwells with in order to make himself known. Listen, this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, at the moment that you place your trust in Jesus Christ for real, for the first time, you became something fundamentally different from who you were before. You, at that moment, were set apart, distinct, made holy for God's purpose, to live with him and to display him. You have to hold both of these together. I would venture to say that for many of us, we are content and actually excited about the idea of having this intimate relationship about Jesus. But putting him on display is a lot more nerve-wracking, right? Do you see the two of those have to go together? To truly share a close relationship with Jesus, you can't contain it. It will be put on display. So my question to you, for you today is this. Does God's holy purpose shape and define your life? Are you shaped and defined in everything that you do by the presence of God dwelling within you and by the purpose of putting him on display? One of the great ways to take the temperature on this is what does your prayer life look like? What does your prayer life look like? That is the best way that I can think of where we acknowledge God's presence in our life and acknowledge our need for it. I mean, to be honest, I got a call from Todd yesterday morning saying that he needed me to preach for him. The very first thing I do is I go all Iron Man. What do I know? What can I do? What can I build? What can I put together myself? And then just to sit in my office and stop and go, Lord, this isn't me. This isn't what I've done. I haven't figured this out. I was a kid, seven years old, praying with my mom one night, and you opened my eyes to know who Jesus was. I didn't stumble upon that. You did that in me. Would you continue to do that in me? You've made me holy. Now would you use me for your holy purpose? Would you remove that which gets in the way of it? And would you just take everything that you've done in my life, in our lives, our personalities, our interests, our skills, our jobs, our families, our living places, our sports teams, would you allow us in all of those things to bring your presence and to make you known? Does that define your life? If you exist to put Christ on display, how strong is your desire to know him more? If we're going to put him on display, we want to do it accurately, right? That's the purpose statement of the church, to give every individual an accurate picture of God. Now, if you're an artist who wants to paint a panoramic picture of the Yosemite Valley, but you've never been there, you should probably go there, right? You should probably go there for a while. You should like go in that little turnoff right when you get in the valley where you can see Half Dome and everything and just look down it and just park there with your easel and your paints for like a week. So you can get every little nuance and focus on it and learn it, right? As you display God, as we are seeking to give a picture, a representation of God, do you sit at God's feet to get every little nuance of who he is? Or are you trying to be some sort of impressionistic Picasso, your own take on it? Where you rearrange the eyes and the face and the nose and everything like that. Are you giving people a Picasso-ized picture of Jesus? Or do you long to know him more? Learn from his word. Feed yourself from his word so you can learn him more. Did you become a Christian mainly because 
You wanted that hope of eternal salvation, of heaven when you die? That's awesome if you did. Absolutely, that's awesome. But that is the, if that was the entry point for you, there is so much more to God's purpose for your life than that. He saved you, not just to eternally save you, but for right now in this moment and for every moment that your heart continues to beat to demonstrate his presence in your life so that he might make himself known through you and not just you as an individual. That's what 1 Peter 2 says. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who we are. Is that why you come to this church, why you're a part of this church? Is this something that you do for your own personal enrichment? Is this something that you do to juice yourself up for the week? Or instead, do you gather together with this body of believers because you know that we share the presence of the Holy Spirit and because this is the group of people that you want to put Jesus on display with? That's why we're here. That's why we're so committed at Cornerstone to these ideas of growing, living, and displaying. We want to be a group of people who are growing in our understanding of God and his mission so we know who he is and what he's about and we can join him in that. That's why we want to live as groups of people who are committed to Christ, his mission, and each other because that's why we live. That's why he's made us holy, to dwell with him and to make him known. That's why we want to be a group of people who are displaying through our words and our actions the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might know and follow Jesus. That's what we're about. This is what it means to be holy. God's spirit lives within us in order to display himself through us. Stop trying to become holy and be who you are. Be who we are. Here's what we're going to do. To wrap up, we're going to take communion together. Because I feel like that's, that's the point of communion, right? We celebrate the Lord's Supper because it reminds us of who we are in Christ. That we now exist to be those people that God dwells with that put him on display. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then I would say don't, don't take this meal because it's, it's not for you. But it could be. Today, it could be. This could be the moment where you, say, where you are set apart by God, different, distinct from who you were when you walked in this morning. Because at this moment, you understand for the first time who Jesus Christ is. If that's you, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to baptize you. Baptism is just the way that we show, I'm not who I used to be. I now belong to Jesus. My life is caught up with his holy purpose. This is who I am now. If that's you, we'd love to baptize you and then give you the crackers and the cup. It'd be awesome. All right? We're going to sing a song together, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to pass both of them at the same time. So just hold on, and we'll take them together. Jesus, thank you for giving us this simple act with bread and a cup in remembrance of you. First Peter tells us that you were sacrificed, that you died, the godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. You were put to death in the flesh, but you were made alive by the Spirit. We follow the crucified and risen Savior, who by your blood you have set us apart. We are to be different from the world for the sake of the world. Lord God, would you help us not to be these closed-minded children who love sharing in your presence together and forget the fact that that presence is meant to shine out from us to draw other people into it. Thank you, Jesus, that though we long for your return, you have not returned yet. What if you had returned the day before we became Christians? 
thank you for your grace and your mercy and patience and would that propel us forward to go get the rest of your children who don't know it yet. We exist to be different from the world for the sake of the world. That's why you've made us holy. Would you do that, that in us, Lord Jesus, by your spirit?